to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Michael Waldman, author of the new book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. Now, you come to us from the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York School of Law. Uh, For anyone who's unfamiliar with you or your work, can you give us a little grounding in who you are and what you do? Well, yes, I'm the president of the Brennan Center. We're affiliated with NYU Law School. We're a nonpartisan law and policy institute that works to strengthen, to reform, and when necessary, to defend the systems of democracy and justice in this country. So they work for all. We were actually started about a quarter century ago as a living memorial to Justice William Brennan when he left the court. And I joined the Brennan Center after that. And my own background, in addition to having practiced law and done other kinds of things, I was chief speechwriter to President Clinton in the White House. So I got a sense of how these issues of law and the Constitution and public policy and public opinion all intersect and how important it is to engage the public. So it's great to be on a show like this. So as I mentioned, your new book is The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. And if we had to come up with a thesis statement for it, I think it would be your quote of over three days in June 2022, the Supreme Court changed America. Can you dive in right now to what those three days meant and why you say the Supreme Court changed America over that three-day span? Well, as you know, in June, typically, last year and this year too, the Supreme Court issues big rulings. And this Supreme Court, with a very conservative six-vote supermajority, issued rulings of very, very great significance that were really big and really important in their impact and and really significant in the change in the way the Supreme Court worked. And I, I argue extreme in many respects and an overreach. First, the Bruin case, which was by far the most sweeping Second Amendment case in the country's history, in which the court basically ruled that you cannot consider public safety when looking at the individual right to gun ownership. You can only uphold gun laws if they match history and tradition by which the justices meant laws from the 1700s, basically. The next day, of course, was Dobbs, which I'm guessing most people know about which overturned Roe v. Wade and Casey and overturned a half a century of constitutional protection for reproductive freedom for women and and put at risk all the other privacy rights that are recognized in the Constitution. And the third day was West Virginia versus EPA, which was a case that hobbled regulatory agencies, in this instance, dealing with climate change, where the court after decades in which conservatives and business interests have tried to come up with a constitutional way to curb the power of government to protect public health, public safety, and the environment through regulatory means, the court said that if something, even if Congress had authorized an agency to act through its statutory language, if something was a, quote, major question, then the regulators could not act. In other words, if something was big enough to need action, they couldn't act. And that marked the beginning of what I think is going to be pretty sweeping assault on regulatory powers of the government. So that's all in three days in June of 2022. And one of the things that calls into question is our system 
how it got to be the point where nine unelected people with lifetime appointments have this much power and where we sit around every June waiting to find out uh, what kind of country we're going to have from their rulings. So it really looks not just at this supermajority and the politics that created it, but the, the history of the country leading up to this point as well. And just so that our listeners know, you and I are speaking on May 23rd. So listeners, if you're asking yourself, why don't they bring up this major case that came out in early June? We don't know about it yet. That's in the future. Um, (laughs) But as you said, these were three very eventful days in June 2022. And your book is coming out June 6, 2023. So you and I are familiar with the publishing world. It is very difficult to get books turned around quickly. So I would love to know about the backstory of how you conceived this book, wrote this book, and got it to print that quickly. What has that process been like? No, well, it's really true. In publishing terms, this is really fast. <laughs> in in newspaper terms, I hear they print a whole new New York Times every single day. But <laughs> for books, uh, this is this is actually pretty pretty immediate. It's kind of a first draft of history. I began working on this book Several months before June 2022, my longtime publisher, Simon & Schuster, actually approached me with the idea of looking at this Supreme Court term because it was quite clear that it was going to be different, that it was going to be politically explosive, that sort of the the new team had taken really firm control of the court and that it was going to move in a a very conservative direction. I, I had written a history of the Second Amendment and had written a history of voting rights and the fight for American democracy, a lot of which also, like the Second Amendment, which dealt with the Heller case, a lot of it all dealt with the Supreme Court and how legal change really happens. And the fact that most significant legal change doesn't usually happen with court rulings or footnotes or legal arguments, no matter how learned and brilliant, but through political engagement by the public. I'd say that's true here as well. But right now we're seeing a situation as I, I guessed would happen, but it's really happened more dramatically than I could have even expected, where the country is moving in one direction. It's more diverse, it's more open to governmental action, and the court is moving dramatically in another direction. And most of the time in the country's history, the Supreme Court kind of hugs the middle. It reflects whatever the political consensus is in the country at that time. But with the history, which I started by researching the history of of all this in the months before the rulings. And what the history taught was that when the court, and it's only happened a few times, when it is extreme or partisan or unduly activist, it can cause a significant backlash. There's a regular cycle of overreach and backlash, organizing, agitation, even political realignment. So the first third of the book, which was written before June <laughs> of 2022, looks at looks at the, the the moments like this in the past to give us some perspective on the moment we're in right now. I think we're we're entering into that kind of period of conflict. And you do note three previous times that the court divided America, as you as you say. One was with the Dred Scott decision in 1857. The second was a period in the early 20th century with Roosevelt's Teddy and Franklin Delano when there was a lot of upheaval around labor rights and, uh, you know, what are the rights of a corporation? And then you look at the third period as being 
kind of kicked off by the Warren Court's Brown versus Board of Education. If you had to locate a moment where you think we have kicked off a fourth period, do you think you would date it back to June 2022 or do you think it would have an earlier date? That's a great question. I mean, I think in some significant ways, I would date it back to June 2022 because this was just such an aggressively political agenda being put forward by the court. I mean, if you think about what the first three big cases of of a full term of the supermajority reflected, it was guns, gun rights, abortion rights, and the interests of fossil fuel companies. It was basically like an RNC caucus um, at a political convention. But I think that the, the, the one area where the court, this court, moved aggressively and in a very activist way before that and this is something the Brennan Center, which I lead, works on quite a bit, is in the area of democracy. One of the things I do in the book is look at the individual justices, their approaches, their personalities. As we know, Chief Justice John Roberts is an institutionalist. He does care about the credibility of the court. He wants to steer it to the right, but carefully, and he pulls back at times, and we've all seen votes he's cast and and so on that aim to keep the public seeing the court as a legitimate uh, a court, as not just a political body. The one area, though, it's worth noting where Roberts was as aggressive and activist as some jurist in a starched collar from an earlier era was on the law of democracy. Citizens United, which basically deregulated campaign finance law in the United States and the role of money in politics. Shelby County, which was 2013, which undid the Voting Rights Act cases since then have have weakened it even further. And these were these were cases where there were existing laws on the books passed by democratically accountable bodies to try to strengthen and uphold American democracy and where the court wielding theories that I personally didn't think were very valid came in and undid what what uh what the elected officials had done. The Voting Rights Act to give one example had last been authorized reauthorized by Congress it passed the Senate in 2000, in 2006, 98 to nothing. Uh, it was signed into law by George W. Bush. It was strongly bipartisan. And so that was a pretty activist period by the court. But I think that even that period may pale in comparison to what we're seeing now, the ripping off of the Band-Aid, the, the, the degree of activism and ideological approach and the embrace of originalism that this court is professing. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers, but when we come back, I'll talk to Michael Waldman about his selection of the term, the supermajority. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Michael Waldman. Michael, you chose the title, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. And I found this interesting because, you know, as we know, with Supreme Court decisions, unlike with, say, certain votes taken by, you know, the Senate, it is a simple majority that decides a case. It can be five to four. But you are referring to the 6-3 split with six conservative justices to three seen as liberal justices. What to you is the import of the fact that there are six conservatives and three liberals versus some of the splits before, which have been more 5-4. Why do you think the supermajority, even when it has no meaning necessarily in prior Supreme Court history, is appropriate now and has 
made a fundamental change? It's a great question, and I do think it has made a fundamental change. Numbers matter. The simple, sheer numbers matter. When when you have a court that is, say, ideologically or divided along a five to four basis, that means one vote switching could change a result. And we have had swing votes over many decades now at the Supreme Court who often wielded significant power in, in pulling things toward the center. You can think of Sandra Day O'Connor or uh, Justice Kennedy in many instances. But when you have six votes, it really creates a, a very daunting political phalanx. A, a faction of a faction has basically taken over the court. And one of the things, as I say, when you look at history, there's a, a recording of a, a phone call between Abe Fortas, who was a justice and also was quietly a very close advisor to President Lyndon Johnson, where Fortas is explaining all of this to Johnson. And Johnson was the master vote counter. And they were talking about making an appointment to the court and what one additional vote was going to mean. So it does matter. I think it also shakes us awake a little bit. Those of us who are lawyers, who, who whatever our political views, still tend to think of the court as kind of a mysterious, mystical institution. You know, as I say, they, they're, they're not wizards, but they do wear robes. <laughs> and they, they try to create a, a sense of monastic silence and reverence because that's how we trust a court. But there's been a real political skew, even before the supermajority, that I think it's just important that we say out loud. Democrats, and this is not a partisan statement, it's an empirical statement, Democrats won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. That's actually the longest winning streak of that kind in, in American history. But Republican presidents have appointed six of the nine justices. And, you know, three of them were appointed by President Trump, who never won the popular vote. And two of them were appointed by George W. Bush, who, who appointed them in his second term when he had won the popular vote, but took office also not winning the popular vote. So, so a majority of the court were appointed by presidents who did not come into office winning the popular vote. Again, we've never had anything close to like that in American history of the potential for a democratic disjunction between what's already a kind of, they call it, you know, the counter-majoritarian institution. It's already got to be thinking about its interaction with the democratically elected and accountable branches. This is an unusual gap between the political system of the country on the one hand and the direction of the court on the other. You note that we generally refer to periods in Supreme Court history by the name of the chief justice. And this is still the Roberts Court. He is the chief justice. But you say that, especially after a September 1st, 2021 decision made on the shadow docket, you say visibly the court was slipping away from John Roberts. So I'd love to hear more about your opinion of John Roberts's tenure when it comes to how he may have changed in his own views of what the court needs. I think that, you know, numerous people have said John Roberts is very concerned with the legitimacy of the court and the respect that the court holds as an institution. And you say in your book, as you know, that the court's slipping away from him. What do you think that means and what does that mean for the future? Well, as you know, uh, the chief justice is only one vote. We give the 
name of the chief justice to the court in part as a reflection of their suasion and leadership if they're able to pull it off or just as shorthand. So the Burger Court or the Warren Court or the Roberts Court. But he's only one vote. And at this point, his concerns about precedent and as he said that courts should only if they have the opportunity to not make a big constitutional ruling, they shouldn't make a big constitutional ruling. All the basics of how constitutional law has been done was supposed to be done. That's not where the other conservative justices are. You mentioned the September 1st ruling in 2021 on the shadow docket. That was the case from Texas on the piece of legislation known as SB8. And it was really kind of a mind-blowing thing. At a moment when they knew, and everybody knew, that there was going to be a big reconsideration of Roe v. Wade and abortion rights, Texas passed a law that said, well, we're going to say that citizens can be bounty hunters and enforce and enforce a ban on abortion, and that won't count as being governmental action, um, even if the courts enforce it. And and when you read it, it's, I honestly thought it sounded satirical, but hard to take seriously, but that's what they passed. And the Supreme Court which should have just struck it down and said, no, that's not how it works. You're, you're violating what the court has said the Constitution means. You can't just say, oh, well, but vigilantes can do it. That's okay. Instead of making a ruling, they on September 1st, 2021, they allowed this law to stand. And the shadow docket, as you know, is, was done in a paragraph. <laughs> and so basically in Texas, the second biggest state, abortion was banned in September of 2021 even while it was supposedly a protected constitutional right in the rest of the country. Roberts was very despairing about that. He had voted against earlier abortion laws, but here he switched and said, look, this is not about my own view. This is whether the the statements about the Supreme Court, about what the Constitution means, are going to be upheld. And the other conservative justices just sort of waved that away. It does seem as if there's a lot of division on the court. One of the things that I couldn't have predicted when I started writing the book was just how much of the agitation and division on the court would be spilling out into the public view. They've all been giving speeches, attacking each other and criticizing each other. And a number of them, and Clarence Thomas in particular, has criticized Roberts. He actually gave a speech where he said, oh, this was a great place to work until 2005, which was when Roberts became chief justice. It seems as if the division that you might guess about or historians might tell us about, they're, they're, they're letting it all show out right now. And of course, the, the time leading up to those big rulings was quite tumultuous. Everything from the revelations of Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, and her involvement in the January 6th insurrection, the nomination of Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, which was sort of a, a, a more predictable and standard thing, but shook things up. The leak of the Dobbs ruling, the protests and drama, and even the attempted assassination of Justice Kavanaugh, all these things leading up to those rulings. This was not a quiet and contemplative time for the court. As you say, we often only find out about internal divisions in the court years later. One book that you know, you actually mentioned in your book, and uh, as a reader, I definitely thought about as I was reading The Supermajority, is The Brethren, which is a classic by Scott Armstrong and Bob Woodward. And that covered a period of time from 1969 to 1975, but it only came out in 1979. And so, you know, that offered 
when I read it as a young journalism student who is also taking media law, I briefly thought about going to law school because I was like, oh, this is fascinating how, you know, these are these are real human beings, real people with different opinions. These are not, you know, gods from Olympus uh, handing down decisions from on high. But again, we often only find out about it years later. So what do you think this kind of immediacy of finding out about rancor and division in the Supreme Court will mean politically for the court? You warn about a catastrophic loss of institutional legitimacy. And I'm just wondering what you think about, is it healthy to have some sunlight on internal divisions or is it better for people to not know what's going on in chambers? Well, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think there has been a, a massive hemorrhaging of public support for the court. Its approval ratings have collapsed. They're at the lowest level they've ever been measured by the polls and by people looking at this kind of thing. Some of that is because of the rancor. A lot of it is because of the extreme ideological conservatism of the rulings. And the public is coming to see them more and more, not really as judges, but just as another bunch of government officials. I don't know that that's a good thing for the country over the long term or the Constitution, because we want an independent court. We want a a real court as a court. I think in some respects, it's a positive thing if people see facts and stare the facts in the face. One big difference between the period the Brethren wrote about and now, and it was really, really a big deal when when Woodward and Armstrong published that book and they got all the backstage stuff. And I mean, this this didn't happen. You know, this kind of um, revelations didn't happen before that in, in, in that level. But the, but the court at that point was was in transition. I mean, you had the Warren court. Earl Warren left as chief justice and passed away in 1969 and passed away a few years later. You still had a lot of the people from the Warren court still on the court, but a new conservative crop of justices that Nixon had appointed. And they were having conflicts, but they were not so predictable. And, you know, you think of Justice Warren or Justice Brennan, who my organization is named after, they were appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. He kind of regretted it, but (laughs) you couldn't really predict where the judges or the justices were going to go and people would evolve and change. And what we have now is a situation where the backstage reporting probably wouldn't tell us anything terribly different from what we're seeing in public because the system has now evolved to a very political point where there's, there's great predictability in how justices are going to rule. The conservatives are going to rule as conservatives. The liberals are going to rule as liberals. Not always, but pretty predictably. And also, there was nothing like, if you read something like The Brethren, there was nothing like what we have now in the Federalist Society. This is, as as you know, as your listeners know, a conservative legal organization. It started out as a student club, but it's not that anymore. It's become a very, very lavishly funded dark money political operation that aims to install conservative justices on the courts and judges on the courts and to build a base of power for conservatives in the judicial system. And I always looked at uh, at the Federalist Society and thought, oh, you know, they, they do they do a very effective job, but they don't seem to have very much money. <laughs> but it turns out that someone had given Leonard Leo one point, who's the leader of the Federalist Society, $1.6 
billion with a B dollars a few years ago for, to use for ads, backing justices, to use for lobbying, filing briefs, creating organizations to file briefs in these cases. It, it's just, I believe, it's not like anything we've ever had in this country before. I, I make the point that there's always a lot of conspiracy mongering in, in American history, you know, whether in the know-nothings and the anti-Mormon political parties to the QAnon today. But here is, here is something happening in plain sight. Again, it's a really, really well-oiled political and well-funded political machine with this kind of very significant power over the part of the government that is actually least accountable. One thing I very much appreciated about the beginning part of your book, though, is you do go into the early days of the Supreme Court, how the Supreme Court accumulated a lot of power, often by just stating it had that power um, and not being contradicted. And one of the incidents that you bring up as one of the three times the court severely divided America was the Dred Scott decision. And, you know, by your telling, uh, the incoming president, James Buchanan, colluded with the Supreme Court and Justice Taney, who was, or Taney, I never know how to say that name. I think uh, it's Taney. It's Taney, <laughs> Chief Justice Taney, on the Dred Scott decision. Um, it also introduced me to the term you quoted honey fugled which I love, Honey Fugled. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about some of those early days where, as you say, conspiracy theorists would have been right. There was collusion. People did have influence with the Supreme Court that was not disclosed. Well, the, there were really three times in the country's history where the court significantly overreached. We all know about Marbury versus Madison, where the court said, we will decide what the Constitution says. It was a very important it, 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 it was a great decision, but it, it didn't have that much of an impact because the court really held back for most of the country's history up until 1857. This was a time when there'd been a lot of agitation about slavery and its expansion, but it was all happening in Congress or, or in the states or in the streets. And there was a great deal of agitation about it. Abolitionism was on the rise. And the Supreme Court, which was mostly Southerners or people appointed by Southerners, uh, led by Roger Taney, said, we're going to, quote, solve this problem. They made a very big ruling. And as you say, it was the first really big leak in, in Supreme Court history, too, just even bigger than Dobbs, which is that it turns out not only did they leak the ruling to the incoming president, James Buchanan, but he was lobbying them on how to rule. And this was something that instantly helped fuel controversy at the time because people saw him huddling with Tawny on the inaugural platform at the Capitol for his inaugural. But he knew that what they were going to rule was that Congress could not bar slavery from territories in the North, that the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional, and that the platform and effect of the new Republican Party was unconstitutional. And Buchanan got up and gave his inaugural address, and he said, well, the Supreme Court's going to rule in a few days. Nobody knows what they're going to say. Let's just all agree that whatever they say, we're all going to go along with it, right? <laughs> and people got, the next day, the newspaper said, well, <laughs> we know what they're going to do now. And Dred Scott was a colossal intervention by the court into the political process. It led to an extraordinary backlash 
it fueled the rise of the Republican Party. Abraham Lincoln, who was just a lawyer in Illinois, uh, active in politics, but, you know, out in, out in the frontier, uh, as it were, he, he called it an astonisher. It was the topic of his campaign for the U.S. Senate against Douglas. It was the topic of his speech at Cooper Union, which was basically going over the reasoning that the court had used and taking it apart. And when Lincoln was propelled to the presidency by backlash over Dred Scott, more than anything else, um, he in his inaugural address, he said, you know, there are some who say that we just need to listen to the Supreme Court, that it makes the decisions about what the Constitution means. But we we don't think that. Then Taney swore him in, <laughs> presumably maybe swearing under his own breath as he did so. This is an example of where overreach by an extreme court can create unexpected and really significant backlash. And of course, in that case, it led to the Civil War, among other things. And this has not happened that often, it's, but it's happened a few times. That The next time the court overreached in this way and again provoked a backlash of political and legal significance was in the early 20th century when the country was industrializing. We had people moving into cities. We had great inequality of wealth because of the rise of national corporations, as they were called, the trusts. And at that point, the Supreme Court justices saw their job as being to stop government from being able to protect labor and women and others in in the economy. Um, They said it was freedom of contract that they were defending. And this is known to lawyers and aficionados as the Lochner era from a particularly notorious case. Um, but it really extended for several decades. And what I hadn't realized until researching the book is just how big a part of American politics this fight over the Supreme Court was. In 1912, you know, this was an epic famous election where Teddy Roosevelt ran against his hand-picked successor, William Howard Taft, and then Woodrow Wilson was the Democratic candidate, and then there was a socialist, Eugene Debs. It was, it was kind of an epic legendary presidential race, what I hadn't realized is that Roosevelt's big issue was the Supreme Court, was actually the Lochner ruling and other cases like that. You know, he had a bunch of kind of dramatic reforms he was pushing. He thought there should be ballot initiatives when state courts, and he admitted this would apply to the Supreme Court too, U.S. Supreme Court. He, he, he thought that when a constitutional ruling was made, there should be a, the chance for voters to recall it and overturn it. But this was the stuff of politics. This was something people thought you should take on the Supreme Court. They were not just clergy or, or, or magical beings, that they were part of the political world and that when they overreached, people could push back. We all know that this kind of came to a head during the New Deal, during the presidency of his cousin, Franklin Roosevelt. A third of the country was unemployed. Uh, the New Deal was was passed in all these New Deal agencies. And the Supreme Court struck down one after another. Again, a source of great controversy. They were known as the nine old men. FDR himself decried them as being in the horse and buggy mindset. And they were about to rule on Social Security and on the labor laws in 1937, when Roosevelt proposed expanding the court, what instantly was called the court packing plan, it was a huge fight. You, you know, listeners may know Roosevelt lost, but the court backed down um, and did change constitutional law. So that was another period, again, of ideological and even partisan overreach and fierce, fierce public backlash. The third time, and this is 
something that that uh, it, I, I want to be very thoughtful about was the Warren Court and its aftermath. It was the Warren Court, because of course I I I think many of us revere so many of the rulings the Warren Court made. Still believe they were extraordinarily necessary. The Warren, Warren Court started with Brown v. Board of Education, where it struck down school segregation and separate but equal. And one of the things that was interesting was that was not actually an unpopular ruling outside the South, at least at first. It reflected the national consensus outside the South. But the court, over the course of of two decades, made so many rulings. They were basically the only time the court was way ahead of the country in pushing for expanded rights uh, and greater equality. And by the end... That was the subject of significant political backlash. And that is a backlash we are living in to this day. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we come back, I'll still be speaking with Michael Waldman, author of The Supermajority. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm Lee Rawls, still speaking with Michael Waldman about his book, The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. So we just heard about three previous periods of backlash. And some people argue that the backlash to the Warren Court, you know, we're, we're experiencing that fallout now. But you're suggesting that there are signs that there is about to be a new backlash. Uh, so I'd like to hear more about, you know, we're prognosticating here. So these are these are all just predictions. But what do you see that makes you think there will be a further backlash with the Supreme Court, and that there may be a reckoning that could fundamentally change something about the Supreme Court and the way it operates. I think there will be a backlash. I think we're already seeing the first stirrings of it. It's pretty significant. The Dobbs ruling and the other rulings that we've been discussing came in June of 2022. Pretty quickly, states, even states that are quite conservative, began passing ballot initiatives to protect reproductive rights in their states. The most significant marker, in a way, came first in the midterm elections in November. The, par- the party that controls the White House usually does badly in a midterm. And a lot of the fundamentals were against the Democrats, inflation and other things like that. But the Democrats had the best midterm election performance of any party in control of the White House in decades. And the reason was backlash to the Dobbs ruling. And also fear for American democracy, people who were very upset about January 6th and about election deniers and and other things that they attribute to a lot of the same extremism that they think is behind the Dobbs ruling. It conflated in a lot of people's minds. And so the Democrats had an unexpectedly, almost unprecedentedly strong midterm. And if you remember, President Biden went out and said in the weeks before the midterm, this is what it's about. And a lot of the smart set said, oh, he should be talking about inflation, he should be talking about crime. But he talked about Dobbs and democracy, and the Democrats did unexpectedly well. The other kind of data-focused real-world reason to think there's a backlash underway came in the Wisconsin Supreme Court election this past spring. As you know, Most states elect their Supreme Court justices. Whether that's a good thing or not is a different issue, but they do. And Wisconsin does. And Wisconsin is a state where the voters are always really evenly divided. There's a great deal of gerrymandering, so the legislature is not so evenly divided. It's gerrymandered in that case for the Republicans, but the voters are evenly divided. 
and have been in these elections for justices before. This was a referendum on the direction of the courts, and the liberal candidate won by 11 points for justice in Wisconsin. And it was all about abortion rights and redistricting and other things that are the kind of thing where the current supermajority court is being very aggressive. You know, political scientists will tell you that that kind of 11-point swing that just doesn't happen. That's, that's an earthquake. That's a realignment, if it continues in other places. So I think something really big is happening out there. I think that the younger people are reacting to issues like guns and gun safety. I think it's just settling in how extreme the Supreme Court's rulings on the Second Amendment have been. And that is now being felt all across the country as courts are striking down gun laws. Um, so I think that we could see this as a significant issue in the elections going forward. For many decades, it was conservatives who focused on the Supreme Court. Now, I think, finally, liberals are focusing too. One of the ways that this is, I think, going to manifest itself is in actual pushes for reform of the court itself, seeing it as an uh, unaccountable institution. There's a, a great deal of support for a binding ethics code at the Supreme Court. The revelations that Justice Clarence Thomas basically had a, his lifestyle subsidized by, by a billionaire Harlan Crow over many years and didn't disclose that Crow bought his mother's house and renovated the house while she lived in it and many other things like that ha have underscored for people that the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, is the only court in the country with no binding ethics code. All the other federal courts and state courts do. So a lot of people really point to that. And the other thing that's, I think, really interesting is there is significant support for term limits for justices, recognizing that nobody should have too much public power for too long, sort of the insight that George Washington had when he limited himself to two terms. Um, and this is something that doesn't really help one party or another. It's actually very broadly popular across left and right. And I, I saw this in somewhat unexpected and interesting ways. I was a, a member of uh, the commission on the U.S. Supreme Court that President Biden appointed in 2021. And, you know, these commissions are, <laughs> these government commissions are often a way to not do anything. And we were actually literally instructed in the executive order setting us up not to reach conclusions. <laughs> so we didn't. So, you know, finally, a government agency that works as intended. We didn't reach conclusions. But we heard from dozens of, of public witnesses from left and right. And they disagreed on lots and lots of things. Some people wanted an ethics code. Some didn't want an ethics code. Some people wanted to expand the court. Other people didn't want to expand the court. Over and over again, though, people said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. There is a national consensus, and it's a nascent consensus. And I think this is something certainly that could be done by constitutional amendment. It could also, I think, be done by statute. It could be accompanied by regular appointments, which means, say, a president makes an appointment every two years. That would hopefully help drain some of the toxicity out of the confirmation process, which has become so political and and driven by controversy. But I think these are the kinds of reforms that people are going to be talking about and pushing, in addition to pushing back against specific rulings. I was sitting in the ABA House of Delegates session in January where they debated whether or not to recommend 
that the Supreme Court adopt a judicial code of ethics, and they voted in favor. They they encouraged the Supreme Court to to consider creating a code of ethics before one is created for them by statute. Well, this this is one of those things where we won't really know what's going on till the history books, mm-hmm. <laughs> because you, you got to wonder if certainly some of the justices probably think this is a good idea. Although they all signed a letter kind of brushing it off. But I agree that if, if the court won't act to conserve its credibility and legitimacy, Congress can and, and may very well step in to do it. Another curiosity about the court today, which is different from uh, the way the court was composed before, uh, you point out that often a Supreme Court justice appointment was held by someone who had held elective, elected office. In fact, we brought off Taft, who was the president of the United States and also sat on the Supreme Court. But, you know, there have been governors, uh, former senators. Often a Supreme Court justice was a position that was held at some point in someone's political career. But nowadays, the justices don't come to the court through the same political process. I guess it feels a little counterintuitive that there may have been, you know, people who were experienced politicians in the past who did not make such ideologically bound decisions. I just want to hear more about, from your perspective, what it means that current Supreme Court justices never held elected office. You know, you are a speechwriter, so I'm I'm very interested in hearing your perspective on this. It's it's a really great question and I'm I'm glad you brought it up because I was fascinated by this. This is really unusual in the country's history. Right now, all but one of the justices, all but Elena Kagan, were appellate judges in the federal system. They're all smart, they're all technically skilled. As I say, they were all or most of them were sort of groomed within the ideological machines within the law, but none of them ran a government agency, except for Thomas ran the EEOC, which was not at the center of power. Very few, a few of them had significant roles in, in the executive branch in that they were advisors to presidents. But it, compared to the past, when it was assumed that people on the Supreme Court would be governors like Earl Warren or presidents like William Howard Taft or Charles Evans Hughes, who was both governor of New York and secretary of state, as well as being chief justice, not all at once, of course, attorneys general and all those other kinds of things. These were people who, on the one hand, they were, you know, they could be kind of politicians in robes. But they also were more in touch with, with the country and, and less enthralled to the technicalities of, of, of the language of what they were doing. They were not making textualist rulings saying, we don't care what Congress meant when it passed this law. They were not saying things like this court has said, which is that it, it would be wrong for us to consider the consequences of our rulings. That would be crass and inappropriate. That would have just seemed bizarre to these people. We're sort of stuck in a situation where I think a lot of people assume it's always been this way. And a lot of people probably think this is what it's supposed to be and it's legitimate. You mentioned I was a speechwriter, I was chief speechwriter for President Clinton. He was eager to try to break this pattern. You know, he he had gone to Yale Law School himself, but he was a schmoozing politician and he really saw a value in having having people who could 
create coalitions and speak to the country. He tried several times to appoint Mario Cuomo, the governor of New York, very eloquent. And Cuomo sort of was indecisive and then eventually turned it down. He tried to appoint George Mitchell, who had been a federal judge, but was the Democratic leader in the Senate. He turned it down. He tried to appoint Bruce Babbitt, who had been the governor of Arizona. And then the environmentalists started squabbling with the the Western senators over who would replace Babbitt at the Interior Department. So they decided it wasn't worth appointing him to the Supreme Court and so on. And so Clinton eventually went with two federal appeals court judges, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer. Whatever their merits, they were not governors or, or, or senators. And I think we really lose something uh, when we have a technocratic court, especially a technocratic court drawn from and steeped in a very ideological approach. And, and the other thing that was really significant last June was not just that these were big conservative rulings, but this was really the first time that the court unfurled the flag of originalism in this kind of way and said, the only way we're going to rule on these big cases is originalism, which, you know, as your listeners may know, is the idea that the only legitimate way to interpret the Constitution is to ask what it meant at the time it was ratified, meaning in most instances in the late 1700s. And, and that literally says that we now should be governed in 2023 by the views of property-owning white men in the late 1700s, at a time when women could not vote, when black people were enslaved, a very, very different moment from today. And this is a very new thing for the court to say this is the way to rule. This is not how Supreme Court rulings have been created in years past. And it, it quite literally turns back the clock. That's what it seeks to do. And I think people are seeing that, too, as, as, as evidence of extremism. Well, Michael... Towards the end of your book, you have a sentence that um, I'd like us to, to close out with, which is, a response requires passion and patience in equal measure. Could you talk a little bit more about that for the listeners? What response do you think the public needs to have towards the current Supreme Court? So, so first of all, I think it's really important that we understand that debates over the court are appropriate. Debates over the court and its members and its direction are appropriately the stuff of politics and public debate, and they always have been. It also requires people to disenthrall themselves, to to fall for, for liberals to fall out of love with the court, as conservatives did before when they were very critical of the Warren Court and the Burger Court and those rulings. And people need to understand, looking at the history of how these opinions that were issued in June of 2022. They were the product of decades of organizing, decades of push for constitutional change by people who wanted expanded gun rights or who wanted to end protection for reproductive rights. These movements started in the 1970s. This was the subject of my book on the Second Amendment. The first time the Supreme Court ever ruled that the Constitution protected an individual right of gun ownership for, for protection in the home was in 2008. That was the Heller case. Before that, it had ruled otherwise. And what happened was, over many decades, the NRA and other supporters of, of expanded gun rights waged a cha constitutional 
campaign for change. They started with scholarship. They actually subsidized scholarship, some of it legit, <laughs> not all of it. And in my research, they worked on political campaigns to get commitments from politicians. They worked to change public opinion about what the Second Amendment meant. So that by the time of the Heller case, it felt like a ripe apple from a tree. It was not all that controversial. And that requires, as I say, both passion and patience. And, and it's not easy for people who are unhappy with this Supreme Court to hear necessarily, but this is a long-term fight. And one of the things that the people who push for something like the Heller case understood is the most important court to win in is not a court of law. It's the court of public opinion. I always go back to something Abraham Lincoln said when he was criticizing Dred Scott, among other things, in his 1858 Lincoln-Douglas debates. Lincoln said, with public he said, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, anything is possible. Without public sentiment, nothing is possible. Consequently, those who mold public sentiment have more power, he said, than legislators or judges over the law. And I think that's pretty important to understand. Even as we look at the Supreme Court, the answer is not going to come from, oh, just better justices coming in and making big sweeping rulings. But understanding the proper place of the court in our system and that ultimately Letting the democratic system work is the best way to go. Well, Michael, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If people wanted to reach out and perhaps pick up this book or more of your books or reach out directly to you, how could they do that? Well, uh, the Brennan Center uh, is www. I guess that's still a thing. BrennanCenter.org. The book is available at all the places one buys books or from Simon & Schuster. It's called The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. One thing I'll note that is that uh, the Brennan Center has quite a few content-rich newsletters, no spam, uh, very nutritious, um, <laughs> with our research, uh, commentary on the law and legal cases, written not for the specialists but for the, for the public, and you can sign up for those free newsletters uh, at our website. I think people will find them interesting. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you want to reach out directly to me, you can always email books at abajournal.com. <laughs>